Howdy, friends. My trip to America is coming to a close, and we will be back to two episodes a week as of next Monday. But I'm finishing off my trip with an incredibly interesting guest. Timu Arena is the author of the Biohackers Handbook and is about as close to a cross between Tony Stark, um, Ben Greenfield, and kind of like a crazy Dr. Frankenstein type guy uh, from Finland that you're ever going to find. He is an unbelievable repository for knowledge about how the human system works, how we can manipulate it using technology, food, diet, sleeping cycles, uh, absolutely everything. I was totally unprepared for his depth and breadth of knowledge. This is one of those episodes that I will be going back to to listen to a number of times myself because I missed it as it was happening. So that tells you what you're in for. Please welcome Timu Arena. The way how you pronounce it in correct Finnish is Teemu. I'm not going to be able to recreate that. Yeah, but but you can do the, the English version, which is Timu. Timu Arena. Yeah, that's good. It's all good. Sounds, Thank you. Sounds great. I'm basically finished now. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you, you're working on your way. I'm adopted. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. I'm joined by Timu Arena, author of the Biohackers Handbook, an all-round fascinating guy. Welcome to the show. Wonderful to be here. I am getting big podcast studio envy of the lovely setup that you have in front of you. Yeah, I mean, I do a lot of things nowadays online, and it was only like a couple of weeks ago I was presenting to a huge Russian IT technology conference. And I don't like travel nowadays that much because I've been doing a hundred talks a year for the last five, six years. So I just like to hang around in my studio and I figured out that, you know, this is the best way to do it. So I can do live streams anywhere and in great audio, great video. So I love it doing this way. And it also helps me to keep my daily routines, which is, I mean, as a biohacker, you want to maximize your productivity and recovery and all that if you fly into a conference for what giving a 30 minute or one hour talk and you spend time in airplanes and in public transport and eating all kinds of crappy whatever you know airport or conference food i think it's more efficient to just stay here i might not you know make those face-to-face connections but if i met the people before that's the way i prefer to do it I totally get it, man. Yeah, there's a there's an interesting um, sort of two camps of people, as far as I can see. There's people who understand that trying to focus on efficiency and marginal gains in the way that you've alluded to there is something which is kind of what everything else emerges from. And if you look after those small things, that everything else comes along as a byproduct. And then there are the there are the people who see that as a as a normal part of life it's like no no well i've got, I've got to get on the plane because i got to go to the thing and that's the way it's got to be done you got uh, it you got it it's uh, basically one of the principles of biohacking is uh the daily decrease how do you decrease the amount of useless things that you shouldn't be doing and 
basically looking for what is the 20% that will give you the 80% of results and output. That was Italian mathematician uh, Mr. Pareto, who actually first devised and outlined the fact that in many things in economy, nature, workplaces, everywhere is based on the 2080 principle. So, for example, 20% of people produce 80% of results. If you take any kind of ant nest, actually, we think that ants are extremely hardworking, you know, guys and girls, all of them. But actually, most of them are slacking. They did some is that true? Yeah, they did some studies on ant nest and they realized that 80% of them are actually slacking around and not really doing much. So <laughs> there's a small number who is always doing the work. So what I'm saying is that, uh, you, you, know, you know, it's up to you if you want to be f- focusing your time on the 80% that will result in only 20% of the results or if you want to seek for the 20% that will result in 80% of improvement. So with that, I mean, you can't, optimize everything. Uh, you can't really predict everything. Uh, I, I leave a lot also in my life to serendipity. Serendipity in science has been key for many discoveries. So people who were seeking for something, uh, people who were seeking for something completely different stumbled upon a totally different invention. So for example, post-it notes, the guys were trying to work on the most efficient glue and they actually made the worst possible glue. And it required a little bit of uh, uh, inventiveness to be able to realize that, hey, this can be used for something else. And that also applies to relationships and that applies to many things in nature. If you want to discover things there is probably a lot of things that you will discover by just exposing yourself to different environments. So that's another part of biohacking is that it's not really about optimizing yourself. It is about optimizing your relationship to your environment. And the more I look at it uh, and the more I look at the different trends in biohacking, which we can also dive into because I'm also the creator of Biohacker Summit. I've been doing that for the last five years. We've done eight events in different countries and what i've noticed is a shift more and more towards optimizing your environment your light environment your water your um you know it could be even your own um, microbiome which is actually outside of you you're kind of like a hollow tube and there's all these bacteria that live in your digestive tract and on your skin everywhere and you live in a symbiotic relationship with all those guys and you can't be separate from them if you want to have good health and that also applies to so many other things like our connection to nature and our food chain and all of that so when i look at my home or my office i'm always always kind of thinking about the ways how i can prime my environment so that it gives me the best possible conditions for optimal performance and health and well-being and um and not always it's about calvinistic um utility driven needs i think that that's a misconception in a lot of kind of um high performance and self-development talk is the need to somehow be in grip of what you're doing and if you look at quantified self measuring yourself tracking yourself with an aura ring like trying to get you know perfect night's sleep that's the utility value. But part of it is also self-realization and self-expression. 
So the data itself enables you to express yourself and it also helps you to reflect back on you, who you are in what place here in the universe and what you're up to. And it brings up important questions. Like if you start tracking your sleep, you start to ask questions like, why do you sleep? Um, How do you sleep? How long do you sleep? And the act of measuring itself already changes the equation. So when you start tracking your steps or your sleep, you're already changing your sleep and your mobility and movement. So to me, it is also about understanding that what you pay attention to, what you focus on is in in terms of your own behaviors, you're already part of that equation. So you're already taking the first steps by using some maybe external ways or keys or cues to um, tap into your own uh, behavior. So if you do journaling, for example, that's a big thing also in biohacking is like doing, you know, maybe daily affirmations or having some kind of gratitude grat- gratitude journal. <laughs> Damn. Good one. <laughs> it's late. So, yep. so uh, all of those are priming you for the day and helping you to pay attention to the signals that are key in your environment. It can be two, two different people, exactly the same conditions and environments. The other one is freaking out and the other one is enjoying him, him or herself. There is a saying that when it rains, some people get wet and some people feel the rain on their skin. So it's a matter of perspective. And what these things are really helping you is to gain a perspective to yourself. And that, to me, what bi- that that is what biohacking is to me. It is mo- it is a modern approach to enlightenment in a way. It is using modern tools combined with ancient wisdom and natural living principles, uh, systems from. I mean, there are so many biohacking systems that have existed for thousands of years. You take yoga, meditation, you know, different schools of martial art different nutritional schools from, you know, from Mediterranean diets to, uh, to let's say, a very, very much a wild herb plant-based stuff that we do here in the north in Finland. It is, you know, we are standing on the shoulders of giants. There's so many people who have mapped the territory and they've mapped really like what is key to understanding your place in this universe and as human being and also to kind of push your boundaries. So if you think of like a martial artist, like you take any of these Eastern schools, I've practiced myself some um, Aikido, for example, and the Japanese, the Chinese, are also some, uh, some Kung Fu, Tai Chi I've done also. And what I've learned from those is that as much as you focus on the ability to produce extreme force with the least amount of effort, you also practice the counter of that, which is meditation and breathing techniques and all that. So that's also what biohacking should be. It's not about better, faster, stronger. It is also wiser. It is also about more being reflective on how you do things. And not always try to, you know, sleep four hours a night and, you know, have foolproof <laughs> coffee and smart drugs, right? Yeah, I think certainly a lot of people that are listening may think that when you hear the word biohacking, for most people who are maybe uneducated about it, I think 
a lot of uh, terms come to mind about people being quite utilitarian, quite transactional with these marginal gains and, and things like that. I recently had a discussion uh, with Stephen Wolfram. Now, he, as the listeners will know, if you've been tuning in, and if you haven't, you need to go back and check it out because it's an awesome episode. He is awesome. Um, <laughs> the, uh, he's tracked, I think, three million emails that he's sent over the last 30 years and about 30 million keystrokes. He's the he's, true pioneer of self-tracking. Yeah, it's, it's a, 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 to a degree of fidelity, that it, at least with regards to work, that I've never, I've never really seen before. But what he actually had as his justification for it was quite philosophical and pretty beautiful, that he said, I like to work. I like my job and I like what I do at work why would I not facilitate me doing as much of what I like to do as efficiently and as effectively as I can? And I think that transcends for me what before, you know, so we've got Biohacker's Handbook here in front of me. It's uh, a beastly, a beastly thing. There are, You're also. is that as a reference just in case you forget some of the things that we need to go back to? <laughs> um, you know, before you have a look through that, and I guess with one reading, you could potentially see each of them as discrete individual hacks or, or, or techniques or whatever it is. But the emergent end result of this is that you're able to do more of the things you want to do. You can spend more time in good health. We, I recently spoke to Professor David Sinclair from Harvard Medical School, and he was talking about just making people live longer, and he talks about the health span not just the lifespan. It's like feeling better for longer, having more energy to do the things that you care about, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think you've given us a pretty robust introduction to biohacking there so far. Um, where would you say are the key areas that biohackers tend to focus on? So uh, what you actually described already, like what kind of people are uh, drawn to biohacking, the kind of utilitarian uh, people, those people are often struggling already with our modern society. Like they try to push themselves for results. Uh, so those might be startup entrepreneurs. They might be, I don't know, some high street investors or real estate brokers or you name it. Like people who are really, you know, working insane hours and not really taking any vacation. So they struggle with hormonal imbalances. They struggle with all kinds of blood sugar regulation issues. They might suffer from gut uh, dysbiosis. There, there is so many things that they seek an answer for in, in biohacking. And they might try things like ketogenic diet and see that the lights go on suddenly. And they might start tracking their sleep and trying to figure out like how to get more deep sleep with the amount of sleep that they're getting. And um, to me, that's kind of the first step. And, and many, many of those people who I see are joining the biohacking movement are really like uh, neurotic about performance in, in many ways. Do you see that as a good thing or as a bad thing? I see many of them being quite unhealthy with it. Um, and what it enables them to do is the same, but in an accelerated manner. So suddenly they start popping nootropics. It's a big, 
big thing, you know, um, that you can have increased mental performance, even physical performance. Maybe some athletes also look for, I mean, but they've been doing supplements for 20, 30 years uh, already uh, pretty consistently. So that's nothing new. But when it comes to working in front of your computer, suddenly there's more than coffee that you can take to stay awake and focused at your work. So to me, they are seeking a solution to their problem. And once they get some advantage from this, they push the envelope even further. And I don't think that's very healthy. So I see a lot of biohackers like not really um, pushing away their old lifestyle. So they might be still sleeping quite little, uh, but they're doing all these nootropics and diets that keeps the inflammation lower so they can get more out of the system. So they're basically juicing themselves faster. And once they take all the nootropics that you take something like modafinil or you take, you know, Adderall or, or you take some, you know, stack of supplements, often there is side effects that are related to increased heart rate. So once you increase blood flow once you expand capillaries yeah you improve nutrient flow Uh, but once you get like five ten beats higher heart rate because of doing all of that uh i i wouldn't be surprised if down the road uh you age faster uh for so many different reasons um and it's if you think of the heart as a muscle it's a mechanical muscle that is doing work when it when the heart rate goes up, the time speeds up. When the heart rate goes down, the time slows down. So that's why it's so super important to do things to counter that kind of behavior, which is meditation, breathing techniques, just going for a nature walk, whatever. And if you're only doing all the nootropics and you're doing all the, you know, you can, you can do many of these things in excess, even things like red light therapy, uh, for mitochondrial function uh, or things like antioxidants, there is a dose response curve to many things, also nootropics. So basically, dose response curve describes the fact that there is a sweet spot for dosage. If you if you get too much, you get side effects. You get potentially dangerous uh, imbalances also. Uh, If you do too little, that's also, I mean, that's often what people are correcting, but then they go to the extreme. They might be using blue light blocking glasses all day long. (laughs) So so that's the thing. Um, They might be drinking bulletproof coffee all day long. Um, There is a balance to things. And I think there is a need for homeostasis in biohacking. So homeostasis in medical terms is the, is the, is the balance that your body strives for. And if you're artificially um, tilting it to a certain direction, like constantly pumping up your heart rate and blood flow, I don't think that's healthy. So, I, I mean, I come from Europe, so... We, we are slightly different than Americans, for example. Uh, I, I feel that the American culture of biohacking is much more like performance-driven, while the Europeans, like, I mean, in the north, in Finland, which is, by the way, one of the biohacking capitals of Europe, if you go to any of these health food shops, we have 
we have we have great products and companies and huge aisles and you can get in every supermarket there is superfood sections you can buy mct oil from all the large super supermarkets like it's and it's all high quality also you get really high quality coffee yeah so it's all available um but people are driven more by uh things that come from wild nature like extracts from medicinal mushrooms like chaga they might be getting bilberry extracts which is basically the uh, more pronounced exponentially more powerful the original form of a blueberry the blueberry that is sold as a superfood is actually uh, the one that grows in a bush is quite high on sugar and it's not i mean it's a, it's a wussy compared to a bilberry which which is basically growing on the ground. Is bilberry bilberry is a hardcore blueberry? Yeah, yeah. If you if you cut a blueberry, you can see that the the things that give blueberries the color, the anthocyanins, which are also the the medicinal properties of blueberries that are being uh, thrown around, which yep. are also great for eye health and all that um, uh, extremely strong antioxidants. Often these very dark pigments are like that. You take coffee, chocolate, uh, chaga mushrooms, um, you take blueberries, the, the dark pigments are usually very strong antioxidants. Now in blueberries, you have only these pigments in the skin section a little bit, maybe one or two millimeters below the skin. But if you take a bilberry, that's the original badass motherfucker version of the blueberry. The blueberry is a selectively bred uh, kind of uh, thing that, you know, is bigger and has more sugar content. But if you take a bilberry, you cut it, it's it's all throughout these dark pigments and it has so much more flavor. The same goes for raspberries. Uh, the local raspberries we have here, those are much smaller, but they pack all the bitter compounds, all the nutrient-dense stuff in there. So anyway, so in Finland, it's not really that much about supplements. It's really about the real foods. And, I get you. And that's the thing. I don't know if it's part of the culture that we have every man's rights, that you can actually go to nature on private land and you can pick anything you want. And you're not being chased chased down. Um, it's okay. Uh, it's part of the Nordic culture here in Sweden and Finland and Estonia. You can go to the nature. You can take berries, mushrooms, um, herbs from someone's backyard, and it's okay. I think you would uh, you'd probably be chased out of someone's backyard in the UK if you tried to do that here. Exactly. So uh, the same in US. So people are not really accustomed to the fact that nature is theirs. Um, yep. But here it's, I mean, we have 100,000 lakes, sauna. The Finnish sauna is part of our culture. It has al- always been. It was the method through which we heated our homes. Did, um, I, read a, did I read a thing where... Sometimes people leave their saunas on or out overnight, and sometimes neighbors just go and use other people's saunas. Yeah, public uh, sauna culture is is big, but you're probably referring to the smoke sauna. Smoke sauna is something which you heat with smoke. In the end, you don't have smoke in there, but you basically use that to <coughs> really bring the temperature up, and then you the, all the heat is 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 in a huge pile of stones and 
it keeps hot for 48 hours. It also takes at least six hours, often 12 hours, to heat a proper Finnish smoke sauna. And a, and a great, you know, a proper smoke sauna also burns at least once in 10 years to the ground and you build it again. <laughs> oh, uh, you, you can't have those in apartment buildings. So what we have nowadays in apartment buildings are these, um, I, I guess they are like electric grills. Uh, so an electric sauna, it's not Are you grilling sauna. yourself, Timu? Yeah, I'm not be grilling. yeah, but um, <laughs> the problem with these electric stoves is that they reduce the humidity in the air. Yeah. And often because they are in apartment buildings, you don't have direct connection to air. And the greatest qualities of a proper sauna experience are actually invisible. They're not physical. So it's, it is the combination of the basic elements of water, uh, fire, uh, air, and then you have earth which is basically the stones and you throw water on the stones and the water evaporates and that is called lul which is the spirit of the sauna and in some co- uh, countries here in the baltics for example in latvia and, and um, slovakia they they hang these different herbs in the ceiling and once the water evaporates it takes the volatile oils with them and carries them in the air to your lungs so that's the essential oils thing yeah now we don't need a diffuser for it you just go for a sauna and then uh you also make these um i don't know how you call them but you basically put a bunch of branches together usually birch um, some other countries here uh, in in Baltics, they also use other trees like maybe oak leaves or maple, whatever. You know, you can just make a, one of these from just about anything. You tie it up and heat yourself with it. And it, it really brings the blood flow on the surface. And you also basically literally beat the volatile oils into your skin. Now, now that's good. Uh, actually, in Finland, they also used... Uh, stinging nettle uh, that so, is hardcore yeah this, you basically get a bunch of stinging nettle together mm-hmm. and you beat someone you know with that is it a friend you beat a friend or you beat a, an enemy you beat you beat a friend who has <laughs> kidney problems uh, in the back okay. and it increases blood flow greatly I mean you probably got stinged by a stinging nettle at some point and it's agony and it's it really increases blood flow that's medicine man might hurt for a while, but it's good for you. It'll definitely hurt for a while. So, yeah, yeah and you can uh, eat it also. I mean, it's high in. Uh, it's one of the highest sources of micronutrients that you can get from your backyard. Wow! Well, I mean, if uh, uh, anyone who is listening at home, I uh, I implore you not to blame it on us if you eat a stinging nettle and it hurts. I'm going to advise you that it almost almost definitely will hurt. Um, but yeah, so. You've touched on a number of, of, of areas there that I think a lot of people will consider. They'll think about the fact that they need to focus on their sleep. I need to track my sleep. I need to understand that it's not just getting eight hours. It's getting varieties of REM sleep, et cetera, et cetera. You've touched yeah. on sa- sauna therapy as well and um, a few different... Operation. Yeah, we combine yes. that with uh, also eye swimming. So we basically combine that. I can get into the details of the health effects if you're interested, but yeah, that'd be good. Let's, let's throw, throw yeah. it on us about, uh, yeah. but anyway, so in this book, we, we go through 
five pillars of your life, sleep, exercise, nutrition, mind, and work, and how you can see all of those systems and how you can track them and how you can optimize them based on latest science. So uh, heat alteration is something that you can use to improve your recovery from things like exercise or it can be a form of exercise actually if you go if you don't exercise at all but you go for a sauna once a week it it is already a really good training for your cardiovascular system and you reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease by that already and it, you also improve your immunity um, it increases white blood cell count and certain immune system cells. Also, something called heat shock proteins uh, proliferate when you expose yourself to hot and cold, by the way, also. Actually, heat shock proteins on a cellular level were discovered when they studied cells and they, real, uh, they, they um, realized that uh, certain proteins increased in number once you exposed the cells to heat. That's why they call them heat shock proteins. But then they realized later on that it also is something that increases in number when you expose the cell to cold or radiation or a bunch of different environmental stressors. And it seems that it's key for its recovery um, or self-repair mechanism. So it, it will clean out uh, intracellular waste and it will also activate certain pathways that are related to longevity, like FOXO3. Um, so, so there are many benefits of that. What has not been studied very, very well is the combination of sauna and ice swimming combined. Those have been studied in isolation, so cold exposure and heat exposure. Um, if, if someone is interested in like, okay, if I go for a traditional Finnish sauna or a dry sauna, how do I get the health benefits? Now, what is the protocol? What you should aim for is that you wait until your heart rate goes up. That's when you are generating those heat shock proteins and you are, you're getting many of the benefits to your cardiovascular system. And um, when you go for ice swimming, a good duration is once once you get in there and you start hyperventilating, you stay there until your breathing gets even. You just try to kind of breathe through it. And that's once you get past a certain point, you are already you have already, you know, got the shock to your nervous system that is beneficial in this context and also yeah. the cardiovascular benefits. Uh, so another thing that for ladies out there is key is also skin. Now, your skin is your largest organ, and most of the time we spend our time in pretty much heated environments, in a tropical environment almost, like heated indoors, cars. Uh, we have all kinds of uh, air conditioning and heating systems in buildings. Now, we don't really expose ourselves nowadays that much to heat alteration. Now... If you do that on a regular basis, it will also improve your skin quality uh, for many, many, many reasons. Uh, part of it is related to the expansion and contraction of capillaries of, in microveins. And, and, and there's many benefits to that. So, yeah, I think some of the best biohacks are actually pretty simple and natural. Very straightforward stuff, right? Yeah. So, I mean... Um how often are you suggesting or what, what appears to be optimal? Twice a week, three times a week? I would recommend doing it 
two or three times a week. But if you even do it once a week, you reduce your risk for seasonal flu by 66%. That's that's an insane statistic. Yeah. So you don't need much. Um, Okay. So we've got, we've, we've got um, sauna, heat and cold therapy is one of the, one of the top lists. So, okay. If we were to take that, if you were to, I'm aware that with biohacking, biomarkers are a key element of what we're talking about here, that it's not simply a one size fits all solution and that people need to make adjustments to their own homeo to reach homeostasis and to then improve on that based on where their imbalances lie and yours will not be the same as mine will not be the same as the listeners at home. Yeah. But if, if I was to ask you for your, um, as the experience that you've seen and with the broad cross section of the public, which you've been exposed to, what would you say are the rough hewn, um, what's the 80-20 of the 80-20 for people to look at doing? If it was to be a top five things that most people could benefit from or your favorite things that most people could benefit from that you think have emerged from the biohacking community recently? Yeah, if you look at biomarkers, what you should pay attention to. Uh, so, so I'm not a big fan of any kind of reductionist logic that you break down a human being to a single number like your blood sugar value or something like this. But in the end, those are pretty good indicators, many of them. But a combination of them is perhaps even more beneficial. So what I would look for is is certainly the classical ones. I would look at your fasting blood glucose, but not just your glucose tolerance test, but your long-term hemoglobin A1C is, is I think, one of the key markers to follow on so that you understand your long-term exposure uh, to blood sugar fluctuations. The other one that I would look for is definitely uh, lipid biomarkers that is related to cholesterol, but I wouldn't look at total cholesterol. I would look at triglycerides uh, and their um, relationship to HDL, uh, LDL cholesterol. And, and, and that is already giving pretty good uh, indicators of, of where you are in terms of particle size versus um, uh, cholesterol levels and uh, cholesterol is a carrier so when inflammation goes up cholesterol levels tend to also rise when you exercise a lot your cholesterol tends to rise so it doesn't only rise when you eat food that is high in cholesterol it, yeah. it rises in response to your, um, your, your day-to-day activities and now what is kind of key to understand there is definitely inflammation. So high cholesterol is not that dangerous if you have low inflammation. If high inflammation, then there is a risk that you damage your arterial walls and that creates problems then with high cholesterol. So now what you would track for is things like homocysteine and high, high, highly sensitive C-reactive protein. They often check for CRP, um, but that tells you more about things like bacterial infection or a massive uh, systemic infection or inflammation going on. But if you track your highly sensitive C-reactive protein, you get a better idea of low-level inflammation, which kills you over time and kind of exposes you to, um, to all these degenerative diseases that come with age, even things like uh, Alzheimer's and, and, and cardiovascular disease that lurks in slowly or... Uh, or inability to deal with um, glucose. 
or insulin resistance. Now, um, what I would look for definitely in terms of sleep quality is the amount of deep sleep. I wouldn't look at sleep duration. I would look at uh, the amount of deep sleep because deep sleep is the key phase when you're uh, at sleep in the first stages of sleep when you get most of your deep sleep usually that's when your brain shrinks a little bit and um there are these um the 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 lymphatic system expands to the brain and it's mediated by glial cells in the brain and it pumps out any of the metabolic byproducts that accumulate throughout the day so basically being awake is a catabolic state it breaks your body down now when you sleep that's an anabolic state when you build up things and you clean out things and you defrag yourself and that's where things like um amyloid blake or amyloid beta which accumulates in alzheimer's disease tend to be cleaned out now if you don't get proper deep sleep which comes in the first four or five hours of the night you're not cleaning the system properly. And one easy way to reduce the amount of deep sleep is actually to drink more than two glasses of alcohol. So obviously, I mean, many of these things that we already know, um, like excess consumption of alcohol or smoking cigarettes is definitely linked to um, many of these conditions. Um, One of of my friends recently, I was having a discussion with him and I was, uh, we are big advocates of going sober on this show. I'm currently just testing myself to see if I can do 18 months sober. Um, I run club nights, which means that it's the exact opposite of what everyone else is doing, but it's a good, it's a good challenge and I am enjoying it at the moment. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I I actually, I actually met a DJ friend today uh, who's into electronic music and he also said, like, I mean, he's into biohacking nowadays, but he spent most of his youth basically, like, you know, watching. Partying hard. Yeah, and watching when other people, like, um, get wasted. And it, 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 I mean, I was just, like, a couple of nights ago, I was, or, or yesterday? Maybe two, two, yeah, yesterday I was in the evening, I was in a, just a summer, you know, first outdoor event here. And I just realized that how many, how many people are smoking cigarettes still. I don't get this passive smoking thing uh, at all nowadays. But when I go to a place like that, I realize that, hmm, okay, some people are still doing it this. It blows my mind, man. Like it's, there's been the anti-smoking or the, I guess the smoking health advertisements, especially in the UK, have done such a good job. Like I'm terrified of being near a cigarette now. And like I kind of always have been. The fact that, people still see it as a, a viable thing to do to me kind of kind of blows my mind but yeah so I was speaking to my friend and I was he was talking to me about how he said alcohol helps me sleep better at night and I was like you're not sleeping you're sedating yourself and there's a big difference between the two and going to bed sedated is not it's got nothing to do with sleep it's just the fact that you've knocked yourself out with two two big glasses of red wine at like yeah, 10 yeah. p.m. Yeah, drinking wine in the evening, I mean, that increases uh, GABA uh, neurotransmitters in the brain, which is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. So it slows down signaling. So definitely it relaxes you and you feel like you're more easily to go to sleep, but it can also inhibit your deep sleep stages. And, and uh, depending of your genetic makeup, uh, so one, thi- one kind of key thing to look for if you do any of these genetic tests is to look for your um, cytochrome B450 system in your liver, how it basically metabolizes things like alcohol 
or uh, or caffeine. So if you're fast or slow metabolized, if you're if your liver is able to produce huge amounts of glutathione that breaks down alcohol, yeah, I mean, you're, you're on a safer side. If you get a red flush reaction from alcohol, you should stop immediately. Yeah, my business, my business partner, Dave, is uh, Asian heritage, and he still gets Asian beer flush, which he has to take his little tablets for and stuff. For anyone who is listening that doesn't know what this is, you may have an Asian friend. I think it's disproportionately skewed towards the East uh, in terms of population. And um, when my business partner, Dave, is about two beers deep, if he's forgotten to have one of his special pills, he, it just looks like he's been out in the sun for too long. And he just instantly gets like a, like yeah. a flush, a flush face, which yeah. is su- super funny in the middle of a night out. The, the interesting thing about alcohol here is that here in the northern, uh, northern part of uh, the globe, you know, Finland, Russia, people drink a lot, you know, uh, and we are, we are actually quite tolerant to alcohol. So we don't get the red flush reaction that easily genetically. And uh, that might sound like a good thing that you can deal with alcohol more, but the problem here is addiction. So if you're not getting the beating of getting a red fl- uh, flushing reaction, uh, you... Uh, risk yourself, you know, getting addicted more easily. But there's no early warning system, right? You're yeah, just going to keep there's, going. There is no punishment, but there is all the reward. So you yeah. get basically the the uh, the release of dopamine, and it makes you feel good and enjoy yourself. And in terms of any addiction, what is key is repetition uh, and the sequence and the 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 time or the duration between. Um, the moments when you release a certain pathway or connect certain neurons in your brain. So becoming an alcoholic is not really about the amount, how much you drink. It is about the frequency. So if you enjoy alcohol because you're not getting this red flush reaction, you start drinking wine at every dinner. Suddenly you drink bottles of wine. Uh, that's the problem. Um, the frequency of use is, is the issue here. And over time, that's, that's, that's also what makes you an alcoholic. And you, you start to enjoy it. It wires your brain for that activity. Now, if you get a punishment every time you drink, you're more likely to steer away from drinking. And if you do, you, you just you're super careful. Um, and, and I think it's a blessing to get that reaction. Yeah. Now, um, you can hack that. So in biohacking circles, you can use things like uh, liposomal glutathione. You can use things like N-acetylcysteine, which is a building block for glutathione that breaks down acetaldehyde, which is one of the metabolites of alcohol. Now, is sounds great. Pre, is this a pre or post? That's a, that's, it's, it's effective when you do it uh, pre or while drinking. So it doesn't help that much once the damage is done. But uh, that's part of the reason why you can drink more if you eat simultaneously because from food you get from amino acids, you get cysteine, you get some building blocks, some amino acids that build up more glutathione so you can break down alcohol. It also slows, slows down the absorption, obviously. Now, the, the problem here is that if you start supplementing on alcohol use, which is kind of a biohack, so you reduce the risk of getting hangover, you know what? You can drink more. <laughs> You can drink more. You're more likely to get addicted also. I, I, I spoke to a researcher on this and he said that you increase 
your risk for becoming an alcoholic threefold by doing these biohacks. So that's terrifying, man. Like so, it's it's what it's what you said before about the nootropics and the use of um, smart drugs. You're layering on top of an ineffective system more speed. And for people who listened to the episode we did about mental models, you'll remember speed over direction. And a lot of the time, you can make yourself go much faster in a, the wrong direction. And this is exactly what we're talking about. A lot of people. Um, ask like I, I recently did a story about I mentioned nootropics and had my inbox got flooded with oh so what what do you recommend what do you use and I'm like so many people say that they have a time management problem when what they have is an attention management problem if yeah. you don't understand how to do deep work or you don't have the beginning of the understanding of a Pomodoro technique or whatever your particular focused work strategy of choice is but if you don't have any like hammering shitloads of nootropics and caffeine into yourself, you're layering extra speed on top of an incredibly ineffective system. You got it. I mean, as a philosopher, you might say that, you know, there is time, you know, infinite amount, you know, it comes and goes. Uh, what you have a limited amount is your attention. So if you, if you do a bunch of nootropics and all that, like, and you think you have a time management problem, you really have an attention management problem, that's for sure. And sometimes taking these substances that might make you hyperactive, might make you a little bit too stimulated, a little bit too much dopamine, they might make you more easily distractible, actually. So it's a sweet spot. I know this for myself, actually. Caffeine is not necessarily the best thing to do if I want to write. It's good if I want to go for a run or, you know, talk to you. Um, that's where it works for me because it helps me to rapidly fire and, you know, make connections. But if I want to do deep work or creative work, I need to slow down the system, really. Like for me, things like, uh, things like theanine work pretty well. Things like um, lemon balm might be good. Maybe a cup of tea. Uh, so less stimulatory things are good in that state for me. Or just like, yeah. Um, I'd agree. Uh, for me for me as well, when I'm doing creative work, when I'm podcasting, you know, getting a little bit more kind of speedy kind of helps. Like, so caffeine or whatever would, would be good. But for me, when I'm doing creative work, if I have too much, I'm, I'm overshooting by such... Yeah, anxious, anxious. Yeah, I can't, I can't allow everything to slow down and, and to really focus on what matters. So L-theanine is one of the things you've touched on there. So yeah, going, going back to one of the things that I mentioned before, if you were to take a, a broad cross-section of people and say, I mean, would you recommend to most people a sauna? I'm going to guess so. Based on everything that I've seen, it suggests that um, heat and cold therapy is robustly pretty good. Are there any other techniques that you think that are fairly robust and that most people should consider adding into a routine if they're they're new to biohacking they haven't yet got the book and they don't know where they're uh, where to start are there some things that you mm. think will just give them some good benefits to begin with i mean i'm beating the horse to death here but light is obviously a big thing so there's a lot of research that has come out in the last couple of years on chronobiology. So basically the biology of your biological clocks and light is a big influencer on that. Diet is another one, by the way. So when you drink coffee, that actually pushes your uh, biological clock forward by four hours um, easily. Uh, that's, really, like, that's really worrying. 
Yeah, I mean, if you're traveling and you try to adjust to a time zone, that might be good. Um, things like fasting will be good because biologically we are wired to move the clock forward until we get food. So I would always like think about morning as one of the resets for the day. So um, starting a day with coffee, but not the first thing when you wake up because that's when you have high cortisol, when you, your adrenal glands are just waking up, pushing more caffeine into the system to activate your adrenal glands is, is, is like putting more gas on the pedal that's already pushed way down. So I would wait for the cortisol to drop. So How that long might, is that typically? So that, that's probably uh, around a couple of hours from wake up. So I would make the coffee, yes. I would put it in a thermo. I would take it to the to work and I would drink it slowly. And you're, um, a, you're, an, you're an advocate of the lemon and salt water on a morning, right? Uh, when it comes to hydration, I would go for electrolytes for sure. I mean, you lose a lot, a lot of water when you sleep. So uh, hydration is key and you need electrolytes for absorbing the water. So the more fluids you have in your body, the better... Um, your system also works, your joints, your discs. A lot of back pains can actually be a result of hydration. So there's not just, you know, enough fluids in your system to moisten up, you know, um, uh, things like uh, the, the discs uh, in your it's back. Dehydrated portion. discs is what, is what it's referred to, right? It's one of the that's, technical terms for it. That's right. So hydration is key, but when it comes to like... Um, hacking your morning water. What I like to do is, if, if, I, if I now had everything in my disposal, what kind of morning water would I do? I would actually use not filtered water or something fancy like that. I would use either spring water or birch sap. Birch sap directly from a tree. That's awesome. It's already full of all the electrolytes in a natural form. I would um, ferment it. So I would have fermented birch sap. So I get also the probiotics. If I don't have those, I would mix some probiotics in there, perhaps. Uh, what I would also throw in, in terms of a lot of people put things like lemon for some vitamin C, uh, I might use things like spruce sprout powder or amla extract. Uh, amla extract and spruce sprouts are one of the greatest sources of vitamin C. Or I might also use sea buckthorn juice just to you know uh dose a little bit of that in there i might throw some things to help with uh, anti uh, basically anti-inflammatory compounds i might th throw something like an extract of ginger or or turmeric in there also uh, also a pinch of pinch of salt is, is a pretty good idea so there you have it you know you have already a more like an optimized version so your question like what would most people benefit from? Yeah. I give you a, uh, I don't, I, I'm, I'm going to give you uh, a way of looking at things. So when you look at your day, look at the things that you do repeatedly. Uh, you sit in a chair, you sleep in a bed, you drink a cup of coffee or tea or whatever you do. You know, look at the things that you do repeatedly over and over again. And those are the areas, if you optimize those, you get cumulatively the highest benefits from. So there is not a single thing, but I would look at your patterns of behavior. I would map them out 
and uh, think about like, how can I do this better? And don't compromise on things like your, the quality of coffee or tea or your chair or your bed, because those are the things you spend most time with. A lot of people, they buy things that they think they need, like a fancy car or I don't know, a new shirt. And they don't invest in small things like a much better like ergonomics. So uh, that's what I would go for. Um, and if you do a lot of seating work, um, getting some way to get more mobility in your day, maybe a standing desk. It, it, the point is not to stand all day long, but it's really to alterate your physical position. That's kind of the key for activating your lymphatic system. So I would pay attention to stimulating your lymphatic flow because the, the lymphatic system doesn't have a pump like the heart does for the cardiovascular system. It requires movement and gravity um, uh, for, for the fluids to move in and out from, from, from your cells. So speaking as, speaking as someone who considers himself active, I train between one and two hours a day, seven days a week. Um, but the periods when I'm not active are incredibly sedentary. And yeah. this, this is um, a, a missed step, a bias that I've not been conscious of until fairly recently. I thought, right, well, I'm, I'm cracking out in an hour and a half, I'm cracking out a thousand or a 1500 calorie workout. Like I don't need to worry myself with staying mobile through the rest of the day. Whereas recently, the guys from Fully, they make the Capisco chair and they make the uh, Jarvis desk. That is what I'm sat on now. So this stool, which is just behind me, and this particular desk, which allows me to stand, like yeah. this, is, this is now, I'm working with an adjustable desk. And for the listeners at home, they'll know that I have L5 and S1 for me are two bulging discs. I have that. I have a, what's referred to as a Schmalls node. And you think, well, I have fairly strong extensors i have all of the rest of the things but it's not it seems it's not sufficient to just look after your health or your fitness during fitness time staying moving throughout the day uh an episode i did with dr ewan lawson who is the author of the healthy writer came up with something called the 202020 rule which i thought was great and it ties in with pomodoros he said every 20 minutes for 20 seconds stand up, walk around and look at something which is more than 20 feet away. And he talks about resetting the ocular muscles in the eye to try and it's, there's been some moderately yeah. strong research to show that it will stop with tension headaches and the straining of the eyes being at a screen, which is a particular Absolutely. distance away. Um, yes. So that's, that's something to take there. Um, so we're looking at the areas of our life that we're doing a lot of. If you're a driver, look at your seating position in a car. If you're an office worker, look at your desk position, look at where your keyboard is. If you're, well, everyone's going to say, if you sleep, everyone sleeps. Um, when you sleep, consider your sleeping position, your pillow, the surface that you're sleeping on. What are some of the other areas that people may have overlooked? Yeah, well, I, I started just reflecting on what you said. And to me, it seems like, you know, if you take exercise even, um, people have recovery days and you know that's when they don't do anything and there is a bunch of research that actually shows that an active recovery day is probably actually better to have a little bit of movement in the day maybe go for a walk so 
one of the key things for a long life, definitely once you get older, once you're now, now that you're young, you, you're going to do, you know, all, all kinds of heavy exercise and stuff like this. But the older you get, it's, it's more and more important to get your proprioceptors right. And, uh, is proprioceptics? Yeah, uh, proprio- so, proprioceptors, I think. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of key. So moving an uneven terrain, uh, you know, go. Don't just go for a run on a treadmill or around a field, but go, go. Just go to the you know, down away from a beaten path and and run in nature and uh, get some natural movement. I think that's key, really, for your brain function and uh, for learning. And it. I'll show you. Uh, I'll show you what practical. I've literally what I've literally just bought. Wait there. Sure. So oh, that's a great chair you have there. Mm. This is a slackline, which I oh. just purchased as my yes summer uh, physical ch- physical challenge. Yeah, exactly. So that's going to be my that's going to be my thing. Hopefully, mm. I'll get get that set up nearby. I work from home a fair bit. Get that yeah. set up at home, and then yeah, when bare I, feet when, bare feet on grass. I know grounding and earthing and stuff. There's a little bit of research behind it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I ha- I I started my first company when I was 16. I'm 37 now, and when I was younger, you know, 18 or something like this, my friends would go for a smoke and for a cigarette, and I didn't smoke, so. Uh, I had to come up with something to do. And one thing that I came up with was juggling. So I started juggling. I started doing all these juggling acts. And that was what my way of uh, getting a little bit of movement um, in my day. And there is a bunch of research that also shows that if you, if you train yourself in anything that requires coordination of micro movements, like, you know, what you just showed me, the zip line or maybe even playing something like a violin, juggling, all those things, dance, are key for increasing the connections in corpus callosum, which is the part of the brain that connects the left and the right hemispheres. There is this idea that you are either left or right brained, like that you are logical or creative. But this is bollocks. It's not based on any, <laughs> any real science. It's Some hippies came up with that <laughs> distinction in the 70s, and it... It's stuck. I mean, it came from brain imaging that they noticed and, and research on the brain. Definitely, yeah, there are areas of the brain that are, you know, more related oh, yeah. to certain activities. But when you do creative work, you're actually using, you know, both left and right hemisphere. When you're doing logical, mathematical equations, you're using both re- left and right hemisphere. And if you're going to be Einstein or not, it's actually the increase, the, the number of connections you have in your corpus callosum between the left and the, light, left and the right hemisphere. The, so the better the coordination between both, both sides, of, sides of the brain, the better you are at both of those activities, both creative work and logical thinking. So, and the best way to train that is physical movement, especially anything that requires concentration and coordination. Quite fine, high-fidelity uh, technical sort of things like you playing the violin or slacklining. Have you still got the skills? Have you still got the juggling skills? If someone throws a set of balls at you, have you still got it? Absolutely, yeah. And I also, <laughs> I, I also got into contact juggling, and I also do some sticks. And I really love, like, you know, to play with some you know martial arts equipment if I get the opportunity. So. I think it's a fun part to play, you know, also. Um, 
I think that's, that's, that's a really cool point that a lot of people forget that these things that we're talking about aren't just necessarily tools for a more productive, longer, better life. The, the, you can find, I, I suck at Slackline, like I suck so bad, but I'm, I, I actually, I do enjoy the process of it. I like being out, I'm attached to two trees, bare feet, on grass, fresh air, half an hour, and you know, it's, it's fun, like that's, it, it yeah. genuinely is. The process of doing it isn't just like we said at the very beginning. It's not that utilitarian tool for tool's sake. It, it can actually be something that you enjoy. Absolutely. Uh, grazing the groove is one of the kind of key terms that have been thrown around in exercise circles. The basic idea is that you play all day long. You just don't go for a gym workout. You do push-ups occasionally, do pull-ups. Maybe you do, you know... Um, you, you, you do some parkour once you're outside in a city. So you're trying to find some ways to use your body at its fullest form. I have to testify that, you know, I don't do that all the time. I, I'm, I'm still learning, you know. I try to get more and more playful and more exercise to my day. And I'm getting there, you know. I just got myself an X3 bar and I do my... What's that? Uh, it's a resistance training uh, system. Um, developed by, by a doctor. I try to remember his name now, but anyway, so he X X three X three bar. Yeah. So basically, what happens is when you do something like a deadlift, yep. the the highest resistance is when you're just lifting it off the ground, and the the lowest resistance is is in the up, up uppermost position. Now the resistance bands are reversing that, so you have the highest resistance on the upper position and the lowest when you're down. And it actually pushes your training beyond what is possible with just lifting heavy stuff. And um, I, I really like the device and it's, uh, it's easy to carry around and um, it's, it's unforgiving. I mean, it, it, <laughs> it, 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 I, I call it a businessman's workout because you can do it, you know, with your suit on. Hotel room. Yeah, hotel room, 15 minutes and you're completely wasted, out of breath, and you don't even get too sweaty uh, doing it. So you can go for a meeting right after a red face. That's really interesting. Um, so before we go, some of the things we've touched on today that I know the listeners might be interested in, you mentioned about um, the biomarkers for lipids and glucose and stuff like that. I was flown out to Boston, as the listeners will know, by the guys from Inside Tracker. Um, yeah. who do some biomarkers. They do a service in the UK and in Europe, although I'm aware that it is a slightly reduced version of their main one, which is all 40 biomarkers. And you also mentioned about uh, genetic testing. Have you got any companies that you recommend for uh, the biomarkers for um, dietary yeah. stuff yeah. and for genetics? Inside Tracker is great if you want to check biomarkers against your diet. Uh, they have a do-it-yourself service also where you go to your local lab. Yep. You get the numbers and you then manually enter them on Inside Tracker and you get your analysis. Another great company in US side is called Wellness FX. Um, I think they were sold to Thorn FX, a supplement company, I think. But anyway, so they, they did pretty extensive panels. And um, on Europe side, um, 
I mean, there is there is genetic companies. I mean, you can do like 23andMe test and then upload the data to companies like DNA, DNA Fit and Prometheus. And um, there is also um, Live Wello and a bunch of other services. There is Dr. Rhonda Patrick's genetic analysis for nutrition and nutrigenomics. That's great. Um, or you can go for a full genome test with companies like Chronomics, which also provides an epigenetic test, or Dante Labs is another one that comes what's to the, mind. What's the sort of cost of that? I mean, these are uh, I, probably cheapest you get them is like 150 uh, bucks and uh, up to 1000 Yeah, for the real, every full MOT. Yeah, but I wouldn't definitely go for a genetic test as the first thing. I would get my basic uh, biomarkers in place. Um, uh, I actually solved my own problem here, trying to get, you know, these lab tests here in Finland. We founded a company. I helped to found a company called HealthDX that does biomarker analysis. So Amazing. we do very extensive full blood tests. So like over 100 biomarkers. And we have another package that's, for the basic uh, metabolics, but we have another package which is nutrition where we look at micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, and uh, we also look at that from full blood. And uh, so you get a long-term understanding of many, many things. And we're working with the only mineral laboratory in Finland uh, to do that. And uh, we are not just providing you the numbers, but we also provide you the deeper analysis and feedback on those so actually our biomarker analysis comes with a an online course that helps you to dive in a customized manner to your own blood work and the amount of material that you can learn from there about your biomarker results is about the same size as the biomarker's handbook <laughs> so we're actually putting that as a book later also so so the biomarker's handbook is is out now. You can find more information about it from biker from biohackingbook.com. So biohackingbook.com, you can already order the biker's handbook. It's not on Amazon yet. We're working on it. It's a big book. It's a big book to ship by Amazon. Yeah, it's a big one. Uh, it's also big for us to to get it there, uh, especially on the US side. We're working on it, and there is some. Um, there's some books that are coming out later. So we are working on one book that is more focused on your nervous system and building resilience. So that will be a follow-up to this book. We're working Would that be on, kind of like on top of the immunity side? Uh, yeah, that will combine basically everything that goes into stress management and um, building a better resilience version, resilient version of yourself. So that will go in more in a more detailed manner into breathing techniques and called heat exposure and uh, but also supplementation for your um, adrenal and uh, HPA axis that controls your stress reactions also. I mean, if the the listeners at home, I'm I'm sure are um, making a lot of notes and then trying to catch up with a lot of what we've gone through today. Um, My taking notes from reading the biohackers handbook is moving very slowly embarrassingly i'm reading the book very slowly because i'm then having to distill down what it is that i'm looking at but i have to say if you thought that there was a wealth of information in today's episode that is about as close to a encyclopedia as you're going to get uh, i think you've done a, a fantastic job with it you get a like a pdf that's kind of like a partner of it as well and then is the 
there's a link to stuff on the website, which is all the recommended products and resources and stuff like yeah. that. I haven't even started on that yet. Like that's yeah. still for me to get stuck into. Yeah. So in this book, you don't have any product or device or service recommendations. Strategies. Those will be basically outdated in a year. So we we took all of those out from that book. So that book is mainly research strategies based on science. So over 1,500 references, mainly meta studies published in the last couple of years. So this material will last a long time. And once we get into the different practical techniques and tools, that's where we have our extra materials uh, pages, which are like online databases for everything from for sleep optimization, exercise, nutrition, all that. And we keep on updating those lists as we go forward, as new, new stuff comes out. When we started writing this book five years ago, so I work with a medical doctor called Olis Oviarvi and a nutrition specialist called Jaakko Halmetoja. When we started, uh, people didn't do things like photobiomodulation that much. Um, Blue light blocking was not yet there, uh, like glasses. Uh, some of those things were kind of already emerging a little bit. Ketogenic diets were not really big. Uh, people were talking about more about anti-inflammatory diets and, and all that. So things have changed a lot while we were writing this. And we've been updating the book while we wrote it uh, for five years. And uh, but I mean, it's it's a huge book. A lot of research went into it, and um, for no reason. Uh, for, uh, for, for I mean, it's not a surprise that um, when you put your heart and mind into something like that, you know, people people really give good feedback. So we have already a second hundred you know, uh, five-star reviews and raving reviews about the content. It's a coffee table book, really. I mean, you can't just read it and digest it in one go. It's like no. something you want to go back to as often as, as you have questions. Yeah, so, I think certain, certainly one of the things you touched on was your uh, the, the potential for a morning water, right? And that recipe for a morning water is probably more lengthy than most people's lunches. And <laughs> I, I think that... The overwhelm that comes with that, you are right. You need to pick apart the the uh, elements yeah. that you need. But, you know, to have a heuristic for prioritizing, you've given it. It's what are the things that you do the most? What are I the said, things that you, no, 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 like as the, whoever it is that's listening, what are the things that that person does the most? These are the areas in which any small increases will compound most effectively over time. Yeah, so we research like what is the 20% out of all the material out there that has any likelihood of doing something and we hand that over to the readers. Now, if you did everything that we have, for example, in the sleep optimization chapter, you would be preparing for sleep all day long. So, <laughs> yeah, you would. You'd be preparing for sleep case. since you woke up. So it's your task then to figure out like out of that material, what resonates with you, what works for you, what is the 20% of the recommendations that, you know, you could fit into your daily schedule. And we guarantee that most of those are research that they will definitely statistically perhaps improve your sleep. But you can't know really until you try yourself. So that's the value of uh, patient zero, you know, being N, N is one, uh, being the one who is being the guinea pig for all these self-experiments. So when you read stuff online or you hear experts, 
you know, do, do your own research, try those things on yourself, be well informed, be guided by the best experts. But in the end, you don't know until you try yourself. I totally get it, man. Timu, it's been fantastic to speak to you. Biohackingbook.com and where can everyone find you if they need to get you online? So, I mean, you can, you should definitely come to Biohacker Summit. So Biohacker Summit takes place first and second of November in Helsinki, Finland. It's our five-year anniversary. And, and there is a lot of people more intelligent than me in biohacking who are coming along. Like uh, we, we, over half of, our, half of the people coming along are from other countries than the Nordic countries. And we get often over 30 different nationalities. But if you want to follow me online, I mean, just look for Biohacking Book uh, on Instagram. I also have a personal account, T-A-R-1-N-A, like Tarina. My first name, Timu, Arina, Tarina. Um, infinite Tarina actually means story. So I'm a storyteller. Nice. You are a storyteller indeed. You're a storyteller of making people's lives a little bit less shit than they are already. And <laughs> making it, making everyone a little bit healthier. Man, Timu, it's been, it's been awesome today. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, my pleasure. Have a healthy, you know, rest of the day and rest of your life.